Benjamins, baby. Uh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Quiet. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. The banking crisis has continued to royal financial markets and continues to be the talk of town here in Washington and across the world which is itself kickstarting a conversation about not just who is to blame, but also about banks, banking regulation, and technology. Now, this is the kind of interdisciplinary rethink, part law, part policy, and plenty of politics, that requires a special kind of guest. And we are so lucky that there is perhaps no one better in the world to have on our show today than one of our own, Amias Garrity, who has seen it all both from his time in the Treasury Department, where he was leading systemic risk work streams, to his current perch at QED Investors. So in this special episode, I'm welcoming Amias to the other side of the mic to walk through for us what's new and different about this crisis, and how it's likely to impact fintech investing, and how we understand risk. It's risky business, man, what is this? I'm caught up in a twist, now I'm trying to fix it. So Amias, it's great to have you back on our show, I guess. Uh, our show, you, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's fun like, to I, do I, I don't know how to like you know do this intro, but uh, obviously we are living in some uh, pretty interesting times. Sometimes it, you know it feels a little bit like a, I guess a bit like a time loop, and um, you know uh, certainly given your experience over the Treasury Department, and uh, I guess my experience living a couple of blocks from the Treasury Department, there is this kind of deja vu thing here going on. But, I mean, you were really in the midst of it all. So I guess let's start there. I mean, how do you think the recent events uh, with Silicon Valley Bank all the way to Credit Suisse, I mean, how does this compare to 2008? Do you think that some of these failures are similar to what we saw back then? And if so, how are they different? So I think mostly, Chris, what you see are differences. Um, I think there there's some big similarities that that actually in some ways are overlooked. But let's start with the differences because I think that is the more important dynamic here. Um, the first one is just credit risk versus interest rate risk, right? What we're seeing in the economy right now is a classic tightening cycle, and tightening cycles increase the cost of money. And when you increase the cost of money, you change a lot of economic assumptions. And what we're seeing is that things are breaking at the seams because a lot of assumptions that were made and built into economic arrangements, loans, bond portfolios, asset management, those assumptions are changed by higher interest rates. So things are breaking, but that's very different than the kind of credit risk driven dynamics that we saw in 2008. The second thing that is a really big difference is banks versus non-banks. So remember in 2008, this we had a crisis that was dominated by um, what people called a run on the shadow banking system. And so although the runs are similar in their logic, the failure modes and the tooling for regulatory and government response are really different. And so I think when you put those two things together, the, the big meta issues are that in 2008, we were dealing with a crisis that was hugely complex and hugely um, opaque. 
And in this crisis, we're actually dealing with something that has unusually high degrees of certainty and unusually high degrees of transparency. It is very unusual to have a bank failure that can literally put on its own financial statements its exact loss. Now, so that doesn't mean that it's not a big deal, but it does mean that it's it's a pretty big difference in dynamic in terms of the unusual levels of certainty and transparency. How does that then impact sort of the tools that are available in a response? I mean, you know, you, clearly, you know, there's a an ability to look at what your losses are because you can say, hey, you know, I was kind of you know, investing in long dated uh, U.S. Treasury bonds or mortgages. And I can see or I can try to mark them to market and get a sense as to just how much less uh, those assets are worth now that the Fed has raised interest rates. Um, that that leads to greater transparency. But I, I mean, how does that impact the government responses? And, and do you see, again, then, you know, similarities or differences in terms of how the government is approaching um, these particular failures? Yeah, so I think the, the first thing to say is that because these are banks, the toolkit for dealing with this is much more established. So even though there were reforms in the post-financial crisis to give the government better and stronger tools to deal with unusual financial um, crises, in this instance, the government is not needing to use those tools. They're using the traditional tools of bank resolution. So in that way, and going back to your first question, what we're seeing with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank is much more like what we saw with Wachovia and Washington Mutual in, in the global financial crisis. And those were not the events in the financial crisis that really upset the system. So in that sense, I think we are seeing a big similarity. I think the other thing that's worth highlighting is that the system is sort of working as designed, right? So um, the bank executives at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank no longer have their jobs, right? Um, the equity holders in those banks no longer own any shares. And although depositors were backstopped by the federal government, that's much more of a statement about the need to have a banking system that works. And, you know, now is not a good time with everything on our plates to add, like, worrying about your bank to the national to-do list. So one of the assumptions, though, I think in that last in the last go around was, you know, as you'd already mentioned, you know, there's, there's a focus on credit risk as opposed to interest rate risk. But, you know, we are seeing this idea coming out as to sort of what is systemic and what is not systemic, right? So the, embedded in the last crisis was this idea that big is dangerous and, and small isn't. But, you know, I, it, it appears that, that that assumption itself, which is embedded in the regulation, is undergoing a rethink. Could you sort of walk us through sort of, you know, again, when it comes to this response, this systemic risk exception and, and what it's telling us about systemic risk? Yeah. So I think this is, uh, Chris, exactly the big similarity between then and now. And I think most people have looked at this and they've said, oh, this discussion about systemic risk is a big difference. And I think that's actually incorrect. So in the wake of the last crisis, what you had was two separate ideas that got conflated. One is that the crisis last time was a crisis of large financial institutions. 
It was primarily a crisis of the largest, most complex financial institutions. It was also a crisis that that was defined by systemic risk, but the definition of systemic risk got conflated with largeness and complexity. And in fact, the proper definition for systemic risk is exactly what it sounds like. A systemic risk is a risk that is marbled throughout the system. It's a risk that is not that you could not isolate, you could not separate, you could not argue is idiosyncratic. And in that sense, what we had in 2007, 8, and 9 was a systemic risk around subprime mortgages. And what we have now is a systemic risk roughly around interest rate risk. In both cases, the risk that we're describing is systemic in its nature, but because the dialogue around the financial crisis got so conflated with systemic equals big, we miss the fact that the real definition and the purpose of it is when there is a risk that becomes uncovered in one area and it is not separatable, then the government has additional tools. And that is what the systemic risk exception says. And that's what we see in Silicon Valley Bank is that although Silicon Valley Bank was unusual in the degree of its exposure to unsecured deposits, in the degree of its exposure to treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, it was not different in kind. And so as bank regulators looked at the situation, they had no plausible way to say, don't worry, Silicon Valley Bank is not like your bank because Silicon Valley Bank is like your bank. And in that scenario, it makes sense to invoke the systemic risk exception, which is an exception to a rule that says least cost. And least cost means, roughly speaking, I'm going to put some losses on depositors. But when the regulators looked at that, they said, if I put losses on depositors, we are very likely to have contagion from these banks to the next and the next and the next because the risk is systemic. Every bank faces similar versions of these risks. And that's why they invoke the systemic risk exception, allowing them to backstop those deposits and protect the strength of the banking system. Well, you know, what's really interesting because because that is, you know, a, a, I'm sure a couple of, of, of listeners are going to say, wow, you know, so you know, a Mayas man, you put him behind a microphone and now he's just going to start, you know, you know, you know, creating all these very interesting, uh, you know, he has a little bit of pluck here because you're, 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 you're going against the grain a little bit, right? I mean, certainly, you know, people keep saying, okay, when you look at Silicon Valley Bank, when you look at Signature Bank, you know, that, that these, that, that their depositors are, are very unusual, you know, so they'll look at Silicon Valley Bank and they'll say, hey, look, you know, these are just a bunch of uh, startups over in Silicon Valley, and they're just different from everywhere else. And therefore, what you're seeing either there or even with Signature and and, and some of its depositors, um, whether or not they be crypto firms or whether or not, again, they just be just early startups, is that you have, you know, flighty depositors and, and these are just idiosyncratic cases. And you're making this much broader kind of issue by saying, look, you know, we've all, including the Fed, I guess, you know, we've all kind of thought inflation was just going to be, I guess, transitory. And so we thought that that would bleed into certain kinds of interest rate policies. And then there was a reversal. And then there are, you know, as a system, people are kind of caught out, I guess, uh, some, you know, without their clothes on. I mean, what does that tell us then? I mean, if it really is a systemic risk, what does that even tell us about bank regulation because we've had this bank non-bank street fight playing out 
you know, since 2010, you know, uh, and if you're a bank, you're regulated, you're safe, if you're not a bank, then, you know, we really need to be wary. I mean, what does this even tell us about sort of where we are in terms of the big rethink? Yeah, I, I think this is exactly the right question. Where are we in terms of the big questions on financial regulation? But you have to remember the all of what we learned about non-banks in the financial crisis, we learned from banks, right? And much of the policy debate, um, although it was not explicit, much of the policy debate in the wake of the financial crisis is that banks are important. We have agreed that banks can take um, unusual risks. So there was a much maligned tweet by Larry Summers where he said, over the weekend, you know, borrowing short to lend long is one of the most elementary mistakes in banking. Except that is banking. It's not a mistake. And so, again, Larry got a lot of, you know, ha flack on, on Twitter for this um, misstatement. But his point is still true, which is that borrowing short to lend long is an incredibly risky business model. And the history of banking regulation is the history of a society saying, although this business model is incredibly risky, we think it does good for our society. And so what that means for us today is just a reminder that literally no bank in the country, big, small, um, you know, a, a quote unquote GSIB, a globally systemically important bank or a community bank, no bank in the country is solvent against a bank run. Chris, you, you know the old joke about new cars, right? You drive a, a new car off the lot and it immediately loses a third of its value, right? Or half. <laughs> or half, right? But bank loans are the same way, right? So the second you have to sell a bank loan in the open market, it immediately loses a third to a half of its value. And that's why bank runs are so dangerous, because if I'm forced to sell this, if I can hold this asset, it's probably worth more than I paid for it. I'm probably going to make money. But if I have to sell it, I, have, I, I will sell it at a loss. That's the nature of a bank run. So, you know, you had mentioned GSIPs. So, you know, that, of course, then introduces this great, I don't know, Volvo called Credit Suisse to continue your, your car line, right? I mean, so although that's, I guess, okay, maybe not the right nationality, but you get the idea. So, I mean, how, how how do you compare then, I mean, you know, the Credit Suisse situation, which, look, you know, a lot of times people say, well, you know, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, it was a question of certain kinds of reforms and weakenings of, of, of Dodd-Frank and all, and, and obviously the European regulators are saying, you know, if, if Silicon Valley Bank was subject to the same uh, capital standards, you know, we wouldn't be in this mess. Well, here we have a GSIB, right, you know? Subject to all of the wonderful Basel capital requirements and the like. I mean, what distinguishes Credit Suisse either from 2008 and from uh, or from uh, Silicon Valley Bank? So, Chris, I think this is such a good point, which is Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse have literally inverted the conversation from 2008. So in Credit Suisse, you have something that actually is an idiosyncratic failure, right? So Credit Suisse has been on the wrong side of a huge number of multi-billion dollar trades and scandals over the last decade, 
right? So Credit Suisse is at the center of the Archegos disaster, right? Where they overlevered a hedge fund, right? They were at the center of um, uh, scandals in, in the emerging markets with bond payoffs and took billion dollar losses, right? They had a weakening uh, domestic franchise for a variety of leadership shakeups that, you know, so what happened in, in Credit Suisse over the last um, decade plus is a series of, of idiosyncratic um, management failures. And, and so even though they were subject to those post-global financial crisis, Basel rules, they did have significant amounts of long-term bonds of the holding company, which just got converted into loss absorbency in the merger. Um, Credit Suisse is much more idiosyncratic. And so it, it goes to illustrate the point I made earlier, which is that systemic doesn't mean big, right? You can be big and idiosyncratic. Now, Credit Suisse is still a hugely important bank. It has tons of counterparties. If Credit Suisse were to stop fulfilling its obligations, you would still have very significant impacts in the financial system. So big can also mean, you know, you know, really problematic for the financial system. But the issues at Silicon Silicon Valley Bank are much more consistent across the US banking system than the Credit Suisse issues are consistent across the global banking system. And so it illustrates the fact that you can have different combinations of big and medium size, systemic and you know, idiosyncratic. And it's also worth noting, right? Silicon Valley Bank is not small. Silicon Valley Bank was a giant bank. I mean, nobody should think of 200 billion as 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 small. And then I think the last question just about, you know, how should we think about the 2018 reforms, right? And I, I testified against these, um, you know, when I was in government, I really do think it was a mistake to think that um, in order to have enhanced supervision, you should move, you know, it should, that that threshold should move from 50 to 250 or even 700 billion in certain cases. But at the same time, Silicon Valley Bank was regulated, which means that it's, it's impossible to rerun the story and be a hundred percent certain. But I do think it was a mistake. It's very clear that this was a firm that grew super, super fast. And so even though it would have been subject to some of the the standards, that fast growth meant, meant that it graduated into a super big zone without some of the um, the attachments of enhanced enhanced prudential supervision. Yeah, you know, you know, in the in this conversation, it's something that I've been seeing my, my, myself are that, you know, to your point, what is systemic, you know, uh, can depend a little bit, or at least we can say systemic, there are different flavors of systemic risk. And this was something that was always recognized and understood, you know, this idea of interconnectivity, could itself be a source of systemic risk without necessarily meaning size of your balance sheet, right? That, that That's exactly right, Chris. And I'll give another example. So, you know, not to sort of brag too much, but um, when I was running the Financial Stability Oversight Council, the staffing function, um, the Financial Stability Oversight Council was the first regulatory body in the world to identify cybersecurity as a threat to financial stability. And in the post-financial crisis, there was a kind of this sense that the financial crisis and discussions about financial stability should focus on things like what we've just talked about, interconnectedness, derivatives, non-banks, shadow banks. And the Financial Stability Oversight Council was the first body globally to say, no, 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 operational risks like cyber could be just as important. 
And so we even did um, exercises when I was in government where we said, well, what would happen if a very large bank, maybe a counterparty to dozens of clearing uh, houses, dozens of exchanges, um, couldn't make payments for 24 hours because of a cybersecurity breach? So no money leaves the bank. What happens next? And so those are the kinds of things that are also very important to look at. And when we modeled them and we tabletop, it was also disastrous, but required different tools. Well, I mean, and, and, and even now, I mean, when it comes to cybersecurity risk, I mean, there are lots of surveys going out, you know, with risk management professionals. And right, right for them, even in the heart of the crisis, they're still looking at cybersecurity risk as like the number one. In fact, even the credit rating agencies now are starting to look at cybersecurity risk as one of the you know major inputs for their own risk ratings. So, so then, you know, let's then, you know, turn to um, startups. I mean, you know, you are now out of government. I mean, you're over at QED and you're, and you're investing and, and obviously you've heard about, you know, whether or not, uh, or how really this turmoil is going to impact um, startups and, 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 and fintechs. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank obviously had a lot of startups as clients. There are echoes of that in Signature with its clientele, not just crypto, but, but other kinds of uh, sort of younger, earlier stage companies. I mean, what are you thinking about now in terms of in investing in the space? I mean, wh what what does the market turmoil mean? What do the likely regulatory responses mean for, you know, both people looking to start companies and people looking to invest in them? Well, I think the, the market dynamics will at first be you know, predictable in their direction, although uncertain in their magnitude, right? So any shock always is a, bl a blow to confidence. And startup investing in particular is, you know, is a confidence game, right? You need to believe that something that's never been done before is possible, and you need to convince people of that. And so I think there will be a, a blow of uncertain magnitude around that. Now, in that way, that's more a continuation of a trend, right? As interest rates had risen over the last 18 months, there had already been a blow to confidence in the amount of money that was willing to go to startups. Now, a lot of that was a return to normal. So I don't think that we can say that alone is going to be you know, undermining the entire ecosystem. Um, Silicon Valley Bank played an important role it's no doubt in my mind that other banks will fill in, but they will fill in less, certainly for, for some time. And so I think that's also just another blow to the startup ecosystem in terms of the amount of cash and the amount of capital. But I think that won't change the underlying dynamics, right? It's always improbable for a startup to succeed. And so improbably succeeding with $5 million in investment or improbably succeeding with you know, $10 million investment, it's still improbable. So I think that's the first and most important thing. I think the second thing is um, specific to fintech, which is Silicon Valley Bank played a very important operational role in fintech's access to payment systems, access to underwriting loan facilities, and those types of banking infrastructure roles, I think, are going to be hard to replace as well and are going to more directly impact fintech. Now, there are many other banks that are willing to play 
those roles to some extent, um, but it's still a, an important supply uh, constraint. The third thing, which I think starts to be, you know, potentially exciting uh, for some companies, and you know, I'll, I'm just, you know, I'm on the board of a number of these companies, and as are you, Chris, um, that um, understanding that you know risk is real, you can't just blindly assume, is going to create incentives for people to diversify behavior. And as they diversify, I do think there's opportunities for startups. So one of uh, the startups where I serve on the board is called Treasury Prime. Treasury Prime is a banking as a service provider, but it's natively multi-bank. So a fintech that works with Treasury Prime can automatically, with single tech, work with three, four, five different banks. So that's kind of a tailwind for, for Treasury Prime. Now, the Treasury Prime team used to work at Silicon Valley Bank, right? So there, there's a tragedy and there's an opportunity. I think it's unquestioned that the, the size of the tragedy, sort of so to speak, for the startup ecosystem dwarfs the size of the opportunity for one bank, but it's still true. Um, you know, Chris, I know you serve with on the board of Public. Public has been advertising buying treasury bonds, right? Um, I serve on the board of a company called Atomic, which makes it easy to for fintechs to enable their customers to buy treasury bonds. So, so I think that there is opportunity in this diversification, but um, it is still generally true that the overall sentiment uh, is going to be negative for the startup ecosystem. Silicon Valley Bank was an important player and is an important source of strength. Amias, I, I would say great to have you, but like uh, that also seems kind of weird. But as always, I'm here all week, right, Chris? You're all you're all week. You're all exactly. You're all week. Hey, thanks so much for this conversation. Um, super, super, super interesting. And you know, whether or not uh, formally or informally, I always learn a lot from you, buddy. Thank you, Chris. The big story I think about the crisis is that it is forcing us into a rethink on our vocabulary about risk. Risk can come from bigness for sure, since big balance sheets usually imply that a financial institution has a large national or global footprint, but it can also mean interconnectedness. Or as the recent spate of failure suggests, shared fragilities resulting from common mistakes or incorrect assumptions. Now, as we get into all the invariable finger pointing, I do think that the response can't be one where, as you'll often hear, we need regulations that will put an end to bank runs once and for all. Frankly, if you can figure out a way to prevent banking collapses, you'll be the first to do so in 3,000 years. Instead, policymakers will need to think seriously about how to constantly rethink regulatory and market assumptions about risk in ways to ensure rulemaking that speaks to the times and supervision that's up to the job. Believing one magical set of rules will forever prevent bank runs from happening again is frankly hubris. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C H R I S B R U M M E R D R. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>